Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This program was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the program that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about wellbeing strategies for young people who've been affected by trauma and stress. We all want to be happy and well, but some people have a very rough start in life. A growing number of our children end up in residential care, having been abandoned, neglected or abused. These are young people who often have little trust in their schools or caregivers. So how do we help these young people get their lives back on track and get to a place where they can start learning again and enjoy life? Supporting the well-being of our most vulnerable children is the job of the Berry Street Institute in Melbourne, Australia. And today's guest, Tom Brunzel, leads teaching and learning there. Tom's role is working with teachers to help trauma-affected children learn effectively, primarily by helping them feel safe and connected to their teachers, learning self-reflection and how to regulate their emotions and their bodies. Given that 40% of people have experiences that could lead to stress or trauma, Tom argues that these strategies for trauma-affected youth are relevant for all of our schools. He's helping educators learn adapted versions of these strategies to create safety in the classroom, a sense of belonging, and a focus on the strengths of these students. I'm delighted to welcome Tom Brunzel, our guest today. Tom, tell us about what you do at Berry Street. Our business is out-of-home care, and I think that's important for our listeners to hear. Um, we are one of the state's, uh, Victoria's, largest out-of-home care providers and clinical support. So I get the privilege of working with over a 1,000 people across the state who are everyone from clinicians and youth workers, psychologists, and teachers. And we really been thinking, you know what, if this is, if what we're doing is working for our, mo- our community's most vulnerable children, uh, then I think we have something to say to help all kids. Nice, nice. So, so tell us a little bit more about the work that Berry Street does. So, uh, Berry Street, uh, I think it really starts with our out-of-home care provisions, uh, and so we work and train with foster carers and uh, residential carers, and uh, we have a small school in Victoria that is a multi-campus school. These are for students, uh, again, often in out-of-home care. Uh, we also serve students with refugee experiences and trauma-affected backgrounds from generational um, family generational journeys. Also, we work with quite a few Aboriginal communities across Australia. And when we're thinking about helping children meet their own needs in the classroom, we realize that there are many, many things teachers can do to facilitate this uh, from what I might call a therapeutic milieu. Now, what do I mean by that? Because that's a fancy term. Uh, we are not, and my team in specifically, we are not turning teachers into therapists. And I am not a therapist. I'm not a clinician. I'm a teacher uh, and a school leader. And so we do not think that teachers, by their vocation, are meant to 
help someone understand their past. But teachers are meant to understand the present moment, I think, and chart a course for the future. And so sometimes when we're working with trauma-affected or very vulnerable children, it helps us to be therapeutically informed. And so, you know, what do I mean by that? That that our best therapists are doing things in their rooms to create safety and to help children learn self-reflection and to help students or children regulate their bodies in the service of having um, to meet therapeutic aims. And so what I was particularly interested in is how could educators learn adapted versions of these strategies to create safety in the classroom and a sense of belonging to work from a place of strength. And I'm going to say this, I'm sure, a few times in our uh, talk today because I'm obsessed with it, uh, to help children meet their own needs in healthy ways. I, I just, I love that expression. It goes to the heart for me of um, a student or child-centric um, focus that we're helping them meet their needs. And it's not something you hear all the time. Oh, I appreciate that. Okay, well, give me an opportunity, Denise. I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> our students have very serious clinical concerns, uh, ranging from anxiety to hyperactivity disorder, autism, etc. And turns out that the that people who might struggle with some of those concerns also might have a background in childhood trauma. And so we must have very clear understandings of how to help people heal from adversity. Uh, But instead of saying that these people have deficits or they have things to be fixed, I love the word unmet needs because it's a, you said child friendly. I like, I think of it as human friendly. Because hmm. all of us have unmet needs. All of us are trying to meet our needs in healthy or maladaptive ways. Um, and so we recommend that teachers walk into their workroom with their friends and say things like, oh, this kid is really frustrating me. He has a lot of unmet needs today, and he's trying to meet these needs, and I'm trying to help him, and I just don't know what to do. But already that term I think can put us in a place of unconditional positive regard for the student where we're holding a vision for their wholeness and it may not happen today or this year, but our students know that people who are holding that unconditional positive regard for them truly see them. And that's what we're trying to help teachers understand. Tom, how do you explain therapeutic concepts like unconditional positive regard to teachers? I know that believing the best of the client is central to therapy or social work, but this isn't the concept that's always been in teaching. We'll talk to teachers and say, look, as an adaptation uh, for teachers from a therapist uh, concept like unconditional positive regard, we'll say this is about separating the child from their behavior. This is about understanding developmental pathways the child may have missed. Uh, that have been brought on from uh, chronic stress or trauma, abuse, or neglect. Uh, this is also, like I said before, being the teacher or the adult being a container for the possibility that they can become because some of our children sadly do not have people around them who are holding that container for them. And so they come into the classroom and that relationship, as you've said, is built on a sense that the teacher is there for them no matter what the student may do. And it's hard, right? Our students 
are used to looking for another person's vulnerability and really using that to gain control or have control. But we like to say people who are really fighting for control are people who don't have it for themselves. And so my students who like who are attention seeking and want power and control in the classroom. I like reminding people that these are kids who have no power and no control outside the classroom. Give us a sense of, say I'm, you know, 14, 15 years old and I'm coming to a day at Berry Street. What, how might my day unfold? And then, and then let's talk about why you do the things you do and what, what are the, you know, what are the rationales for the work behind it? Well, I've got one special sentence for your listeners today, and that is unpredictability equals risk. And it's a theory that really works for all of us, but really for struggling students. What it means is that in an unpredictable, chaotic, or confusing world, we will do things to make that uh, environment less risky to ourselves. So, you know, I know you well, Denise, you and I are pretty happy, healthy people who work hard. When we perceive the world to be chaotic for us, we might seek support, we might take three deep breaths, we might connect to our strengths. Uh, and those are all very cognitive Uh, abilities. You know, you have to have a well-screwed-on head to your body to be able to do the things that I just said. But our students, they, it is more predictable for them to feel uh, ashamed in the classroom or to feel yelled at or to feel like they've made mistakes. And so our students, to deal with that chaos, they'll create a predictable response, which is, you know what, I'm going to do this silly thing, I'm going to get the class's attention, I'm going to make that teacher angry at me, and that teacher's going to lecture at me, but no big deal because I'm used to lecturing. Yeah, and And we're on familiar ground, I know where we are. totally, and it's maladaptive, but it's predictable for the kid, and the kid can turn around and look at his friends and say, ah, this person, this teacher, see, I told you. So that's a predictable response. What we're trying to do at the Barry Street School and helping schools across our countries is to create predictable, routine, and dare I say in a secular way, ritualized classrooms. So what do I mean by that? I want teachers to have predictable routines that are shared across schools and communities of greetings and starting with perhaps a circle where students have the chance to be positively primed for the classroom, by that a chance to really boost positive emotion right away, uh, to be recognized for their strengths, to shake someone's hand right away in the morning. Uh, for healthy touch, because we know that people who don't know how to touch each other in healthy ways will touch each other in very unhealthy ways. And these kinds of routines are stepping a kid into a classroom learning environment, uh, because I'd love to uh, remind the listeners that learning is not smooth sailing. Like when we're really learning something, And my teacher word for that is when you're in the zone of proximal development, like your challenge zone. When we're challenged during learning, that's not smooth. They're de-escalated. That's a that's an escalation. That's your heart rate going up, and you sweat a little bit, and you you you, a fixed mindset comes into all of us that says, "I'm too dumb to do this right now." And I think you and I, as successful learners, we have grown to love that feeling. In, in fact, if we don't have that feeling, then we think that we're not learning and probably aren't. But when you when you are dysregulated or you are having struggle managing your, your stress response, 
when you don't understand what that gorgeous feeling of mindfulness and being in the present moment really is, then that feeling of escalation in learning can be very confronting and we can see why students rush to panic and shut down very quickly. So I think one way for teachers and carers and parents to mitigate this is to create routine rich environments that show the student I'm here for you and I can hold this chaos and actually it's the routines that hold the chaos. Uh, perhaps an applicable uh, metaphor or not metaphor example is uh, when my when my parent friends say, "Oh, we're humming along in our house until it's time for school holidays," and then the routine just falls out the window and everybody's all over the place. And you know, it, school can be hard, but I'm happy when everyone's back in their routine. Yeah, yeah. So, so a key part of the day then is around relation around around structure and routine predictable routine but you've also mentioned um um touch um connection relationship and connection and i know um another part of it another part of your day is around kind of rhythmic patterning so tell us a bit more about that yes um uh, yes uh i'd love to introduce two concepts that have been enormously uh, helpful to us. Uh, one is around movement. I'll talk about that second. Um, first, I would just want to say a word about self-reflection. So, you know, we know uh, now from um, emerging brain research that if you were significantly, um, if you were significantly impacted by childhood trauma or in utero trauma, sadly, as some of our families experience violence as uh, children are carried to term. Um, that those children may not have developed the central brain structures that allow us to self-reflect. And so that might allow us to say, this is how I feel. This is how my body feels. This is how I feel escalated. This is how I can understand the emotions of another. And so when we ask struggling kiddos, you know, why did you do this? And could you have made a better choice? And how do you feel? We realize that a lot of our kids are pantomiming or faking answers because their brains not have, might be able to really put that together. Um, it doesn't mean we give up. It means that we have to have enormously more um, repetitions and uh, opportunities for kids to learn that self-reflection. So we'll do that uh, by uh, by uh, routines such as circles, repeated opportunities for restorative practice, um, and all the character strengths work and the strengths-based work we've learned from positive education, very important. Um, And another theme that you've given me the entry to is movement. So, you know, we... In, in terms of trauma-informed practice, and that's a that's a new buzzword uh, in the last few years for us teachers and carers, um, we love this word, and it's our job to keep this, I think, in the forefront of our thinking and our practice for quite some time. But for teachers, trauma-informed practice is really about building self-regulation or regulation of heated emotions and regulation of the stress response and building relational capacity. Because if you have struggled in your early years to form strong relationships, then you're not going to be able to do that well in the classroom. Uh, We know, like I just said, that talking about it isn't going to improve self-regulation. And uh, the advent of the most innovative work around building self-regulation in our children is movement and body. And, uh, And so 
uh, we like the theory that says that uh, movements that are patterned and rhythmic and repetitioned and somatosensory, uh, and somatosensory is a big word that means when the body is forced to uh, to in, uh, integrate sensor more than one sensory input at a time, uh, such as when uh, we swim, where we all of our senses are activated. So swimming is a nice activity to build the body's uh, self-regulatory strength. Um, that these are the kind of things that our kids need the most uh, because, of course, we're concerned about sedentary children, but we really, really know that when our kids don't get to move and they don't get to have movement like pattern, repetitive, rhythmic activities, uh, they're not getting the chance to build self-regulation in their bodies. So, you know, I'm fascinated because I've worked with schools here in New Zealand whom I know are really interested in the Berry Street model. Mm-hmm. And um, and this is from a few years back. And I guess at Berry Street, you're dealing with um, a whole population of students who have suffered, you know, trauma, abuse or neglect in some way. But most schools will have some students. And so what I'm, what I'm hearing is there is a lot wider interest in this approach now. And is that, yeah. is that something that you're involved with now? Yeah, for sure. We, uh, I, I'd like to share 40%, right? So the most recent data coming out is that 40% of all of us, and that would mean every mainstream classroom, has been exposed to the kinds of things that may lead us to be trauma-affected. Now, I'm not saying that 40% of us are trauma-affected, but sadly, in our countries, when we look at the incidences of violence and exposure to violence, we can see why those numbers have climbed. But I also am reminded of a conversation I was very fortunate enough to uh, have with uh, Martin Seligman uh, about a decade ago now, where he said, um, You'll, you ne- as a teacher, you never know when the student in front of you may need the strategy you're teaching. So this was in reference to his early work on resilient self-talk. But he always gave the example then of uh, a student who looks like a high-flying person in high school, but when that... When that person becomes a young woman with a family of her own and the family may, may have struggle, if we don't teach strategies like resilient self-talk when children are taking in new knowledge and in a school environment, then that person, when they're older, may not have that strategy ready to go. So we take a long-term view of this, and we do think that these strategies are for everyone and uh, mainstream populations and also uh, high-flying schools who are saying, you know, I, I bet you hear this a lot, Denise. I hear the A word a lot, anxiety, right? And I, I get a lot of requests these days to talk about that word and to give strategies for that word, and I tread very carefully now. Because, um, you know, who knows that word are students. Students know that word, and students are using that word in a lot of different scenarios. And I'm concerned that what's what could be called anxiety, uh, that is not, you know, obviously I'm not talking about clinically diagnosed anxiety, but what, what is now becoming in the modern parlance, parlance anxiety is my inability to understand the world around me. Therefore, I will either act out or I'll act in. And this is a very, very important thing for all teachers, I think, to be aware of because we're supporting kids in a in a world that's becoming, I think, more chaotic, uh, especially yeah. with social media, et cetera. 
Uh, I think the an, another side of that is also that it's very easy to put a label on somebody as anxious, but we all have things that make us anxious from time to time. And I think there's an important role um, for teachers as well in saying this is part of the human condition. We all have, you know, um, not to medicalize us too much, that we all have stuff we care about. We all have stuff that matters to us. And yeah. success, disappointment, and setback is a is a normal part of life, and learning to deal with that is is an important thing we all do. What advice have you for teachers working with trauma affected students? I love leaving a bit of a message for all of us adults who are doing our best um, that there are two concepts from the vicarious uh, trauma literature that are very important for all of us to understand. Uh, One of them is uh, what I will call compassion satisfaction, right? Like that's what you feel at the end of a long day that when you put all of your resources of empathy and care into what you're doing with young people and the best days are when they return it to you and they say wow i learned stuff and thank you and wow i feel i feel like the person i want to be today but we also know that when we work in uh struggling communities that those days might be few and far between and the opposite of compassion satisfaction is compassion fatigue and that is when the resources that we have of empathy and care are Uh, the first to be depleted because we don't get that feedback loop. And I think it can be quite helpful for even to label that both compassion satisfaction and compassion fatigue on the good days and the hard days uh, and know what's happening and know that the thing that got us into this work, our resources of empathy and care and relationship uh, and knowing that those can be the first to be depleted. I think that can be a first step to self-care. Nice. Thank you. And Tom, just before we go, um, one of my favorite questions for people is, we're talking about well-being and we all do a lot of work in this space, but I'm just curious, what's your favorite go-to strategy (laughs) that that picks you up? Okay. Well, I have to let the listeners know a little bit about me. Uh, uh, One of my top character strengths uh, is the appreciation of beauty. And uh, well, I, I, I was a very lucky kid that there was an art museum very close to my house. And it was one of the places my parents let me go by myself. So I, as a child and as a teenager, I spent hours and hours walking around art museums by myself in a, I think I'm now looking back, a meditative state and enjoying the paintings. But really, uh, loving the environment of this sort of sacred space of what might be happening to the best of us in our museum. So I find on rough, on rough weeks, and there can be some of those, uh, if I'm not giving myself the chance to be with art in beautiful places, uh, I got to return to that strength. And nice. <laughs> and if, and what would be your absolute favorite? If, if I could only put oh. one painting in front of you, what would it be? <laughs> oh, Okay, at the risk of uh, disturbing your viewers, I've got two favorites. One of them is Francis Bacon. I just oh, love wow. the style, and I yeah. love the drama, and there's something to see all the time. The painterly aspects of it. And i got to say, I love Mark Rothko. Oh, and, I was about to uh, say, would you, would you love a big Rothko? Okay. Oh, yes. My favorite place in the universe is in Houston, Texas, where Mark Rothko worked with uh, uh, both, both philanthropists and uh, architects to design something called the Rothko Chapel. I'd advise people to look it up. It's this gorgeous hexagon 
hexagonal place with these Rothko paintings in it. And I try to make pilgrimages images to that place every chance I get. Oh, that's so gorgeous. Um, Tom, thank you very much for being with us. It's a complete delight to get to talk to you. Thank you to you and to Berry Street for all the good work you do. Uh, Denise, okay. thank you very much. So Tom's message today has reminded us that for trauma-affected people, unpredictability equals risk. So Tom's been reminding us that Berry Street is about taking the risk out of the classroom for students by providing safe, predictable routines and spaces for trauma-affected young people. Tom reminded us that, that these students need safe, reliable, trustworthy people who'll be there for them and help them learn. And it turns out that safe relationship and routines help students actually try to engage and learn. Berry Street's work focuses on seeing the best in their students, noticing their strengths in the good they do, and when their behaviour is challenging, remembering that the student is not their behaviour. Tom has been reminding us that having genuine connection with teachers and feeling safe and secure with them is an essential first step to being able to learn. I think that's a message that applies to all of us, whether we're teachers, parents or colleagues. Tom's favourite strategy to boost his well-being is to look at beautiful art. What strategy do you use to boost your well-being and how can you do more of that this week? You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to listen to a podcast of this show, you can find it on or.org.nz or at nziwr.co.nz. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. For more information on how schools, communities and workplaces can grow their well-being and resilience, go to nziwr.co.nz.